Back in the days of classical antiquity, a hero meant a very different thing than our current definition. The idea of a hero in Greco-Roman mythology was someone who did great deeds, uh, usually slaying a monster or completing an arduous voyage, but, you know, other things as well. However, uh, the modern idea of a hero who is altruistically helping people for the betterment of society is uh, something of a newer imposition. This is embodied in lots of ways, but particularly in superheroes. It becomes an interesting dichotomy when we bring in uh, Thor, uh, because Thor is a figure from the more classic archetype of the hero, but in the context of how most people know him, which is through the Marvel movies, Thor plays into, you know, your, your Superman-style superhero. This brings us to Thor Ragnarok, which is the third proper Thor solo movie, and for the most part, the most well-received. And a lot of that is because the film is a lot lighter and more playful th than the previous two installments, and we will be getting into that and how its uh, construction has sort of differed from the preceding two films in the series. Also, I want to bring up the huge divergence there is between this playful, silly tone and also some of the more serious socio-political uh, aspects in the subtext. A good chunk of it is related to the uh, classic art type of the hero. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Joining me for this episode is my sister Sarah and her son Toby. Hello! Hi guys! Toby is, once again, the person we're bringing in because he is in the target demographic for this movie. This movie was made for him. Not only that, but he recently wrote an essay about how Thor is his favorite fictional character. Yes. Yeah. It was very fun to write that essay. I believe Sarah is running back to grab it right now. We will be breaking it down because it ties into some of the things that I, that I brought up earlier. Personally, I think Thor Ragnarok is one of the best Marvel movies. Uh, how do you two feel about it? very good Marvel movie. It's up there as my favorite. Um, Winter Soldier and Thor Ragnarok, I think, are tied for my favorite, with Guardians of the Galaxy being a close second. Okay, so uh, before we go any further, I'm going to break down the plot. There are a lot of spinning wheels here, but I will do my best to make it as succinct as possible. All right, the beginning of the film finds Thor locked in a cage in the uh, cave of Surtur. He uh, recaps the preceding films for people who hadn't seen it or, you know, just needed a recap. Uh, at the end of Avengers Age of Ultron, he had vowed, after going on a vision quest, to go out and find the uh, six Infinity Stones, and uh, he didn't find them. Now, also lately, he's been having nightmares about Asgard being destroyed. Surtur brings him out for uh, an interrogation and over the course of this reveals that Odin is no longer in Asgard and that he, Surtur, is fated to destroy the realm very shortly, an event known as Ragnarok. All he needs to do is unite his crown with the eternal flame that is burning in Odin's vault. And he uh, mentions to Thor that Thor is tied into this too. This is what we call uh, foreshadowing amongst professional academic circles. At this point, Thor breaks free, defeats Surtur, and steals his crown, thinking that this will be enough to prevent Ragnarok. Now, he wants to return to Asgard after his long sojourn away, but has a hard time getting there. This is because Heimdall, who traditionally guards the rainbow bridge of the, of the Bifrost with his magic sword, has been replaced by Scourge. At this point, Thor figures out that Loki has faked his death in the preceding movie and has been impersonating Odin ever since. After exposing Loki in one of the funnier scenes in the film, 
Thor forces him to help locate Odin on Earth. He eventually gets directions from Doctor Strange in a very superfluous cameo, and then they find uh, Odin in Norway. Odin reveals that he is dying and that Ragnarok is imminent despite Thor's previous efforts. You see, Odin's death will allow Hela, his firstborn daughter and the goddess of death, to escape from a mystical prison he trapped her in, and then she will proceed to ravage the realm. Hela immediately appears after Odin passes away and declares her intention to command Asgard's forces in the conquest of the known universe. Thor attacks immediately, but Hela easily shatters his hammer. This scares the crap out of Loki, who summons the Bifrost to uh, flee away. However, Hela follows them and forces them out into outer space. Once she's in Asgard, uh, Hela kills the Warriors 3, you know, a bunch of characters that were in the previous two movies but never made much of an impact, and then she uh, resurrects an army of zombie Vikings and frees the giant wolf Fenris. Uh, Scourge, remember him, he sees all this uh, death and destruction and decides that it would be good to uh, throw in behind Hela. However, Hela, once she secures her place in Asgard as the usurper, cannot go out and conquer the rest of the Nine Realms or the rest of the universe because Heimdall had snuck in and stolen the sword that allows the Bifrost Bridge to operate. Meanwhile, Thor crash lands on a garbage pile on the planet Sakaar. This is a world surrounded by uh, teleportational wormholes. That will come in later. He is instantly captured by a slave trader named Scrapper 142, who fits him with an obedience disc and sells him to a, uh, as a gladiator to Sakaar's ruler, who calls himself the Grandmaster. He's the best character ever! Sarah has a thing for Jeff Goldblum. We'll be talking about that. Thor discovers that Loki has uh, already curried the favor of the Grandmaster, but uh, Loki's not going to help him out. He's playing him uh, for himself, as he usually is. Thor also notices that Scrapper 142 is a Valkyrie, one of uh, a force of female warriors who were killed fighting Hela ages ago. He attempts to garner her sympathy on behalf of Asgard's plight, but Valkyrie is too bitter, jaded, and drunk to uh, pay attention to that. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah, the, the drunk comes first. The Grandmaster makes a vague promise that Thor will attain his freedom if he defeats the uh, undefeated champion, who turns out to be the Hulk. Surprising no one. Hulk disappears into space at the end of Age of Ultron, and yeah, he, he's been a gladiator on Sakaar ever since. Uh, before that, Thor does make some friends in his fellow gladiators Korg and Meek. They're looking to organize a slave revel, but they balk when they learn that Thor is about to, you know, face off against the Hulk. Thor is initially happy to see the Hulk because he thinks that the Hulk is going to help him, and the Hulk is not interested in doing that. The Hulk is interested in fighting, which sets up a pretty fun combat sequence where uh, Thor summons lightning out of nowhere to uh, take down a Hulk despite the loss of his hammer. Well, uh, that, that is another bit of foreshadowing there. He gains the upper hand, uh, but the Grandmaster switches on that little obedience disc in Thor's neck and sabotages his fighting chance at the last moment. Thor awakens in the Hulk's quarters. Uh, he again tries to convince Hulk and Valkyrie to assist him in escaping Sakaar, but neither of them are willing. However, he does manage to uh, trick Valkyrie into his presence so he can slide of hand grab the control rod for his little uh, zappy obedience disc. At which point, he frees himself and leaves to find the uh, jet that the Hulk traveled to Sakaar on in the first place so he can get back home. However, uh, Hulk follows Thor, uh, wanting him to stay. They, 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 they'd had a heart-to-heart -heart talk, and now Hulk wanted to be his friend again. Thor plays uh, some video of the Black Widow, who was the Hulk's love interest in Age of Ultron. And the Hulk turns into Bruce Banner for the first time in two years, and Banner is not in a good place when he notices that he's on an alien planet and so much time has passed since he last has a cogent memory. 
The Grandmaster orders Loki and Valkyrie to capture the Hulk and Thor. They swiftly come to blows after this, and Loki forces Valkyrie to relive the deaths of her companions at Hela's hand. Valkyrie then knocks out Loki in a rage, but she is motivated to help Thor from this point on. As soon as she finds him, she, Banner, uh, and the captured Loki conspire to uh, steal one of the uh, Grandmaster's spaceships. Loki has the code. Uh, the group then uh, liberates the gladiators, inciting a slave revolt for a good uh, distraction. Once they're on the docking bay, Loki attempts to betray Thor again, but Thor anticipated this turn finally, and he incapacitates Loki with, with a little slave disc. Thor, Hulk, and uh, Valkyrie abandon Loki on Sakaar, but Loki is soon found by Korg and Meek. Now, while all this is going on, we've been going back and forth between that and Asgard as uh, Hela is consolidating her power and hunting down various uh, resistant forces against her conquest of Asgard. She is also desperately looking for the sword. Gurridge, who has been her right-hand man, has been promoted to the uh, palace's official executioner and has been somewhat reluctantly, as we see close-ups of Scourge's face, feeling guilt, ravaging the people. He was about to publicly execute a person in order to get information about where the sword is. And Thor, Banner, and Valkyrie arrive just as Hela is laying siege to the compound that Heimdall has snuck all of the Asgardians into. Banner transforms into Hulk and starts fighting the giant Fenris wolf. Valkyrie helps him out while Thor attacks Hela. However, Hela is too powerful for him because her presence in Asgard just makes her stronger with every growing moment, and she knocks out one of his eyes. At this point, Loki and the gladiators arrive in a spaceship to rescue the Asgardians who are blocked off from the Bifrost Bridge. But the zombie Vikings still threaten to overwhelm them. A remorseful Scourge, who has uh, snuck aboard the refugee ship, winds up sacrificing himself to buy time for the Asgardians to escape. Thor gets a vision of his father one more time, who gives him a lecture about how he's not the god of hammers, he's the god of thunder, and that Asgard is not a place, it is a people. This inspires Thor to believe that instead of preventing Ragnarok, he should cause it. He instructs Loki to take the crown of Surtur and put it on the Eternal Flame. Surtur is reborn and starts fighting Hela in his quest to destroy Asgard. While that is going on, everybody, who is a good guy, sneaks aboard the spaceship and flies away as everything explodes. Thor, after spending two movies in this one, dealing with his reluctance to stay in Asgard and accept the responsibility of governing his people, assumes the rank of, the, of a king and decides to resettle his people on Earth. Now, the mid-credits scene involves the spaceship being stopped by another spaceship, which is the one that Thanos commands, which we find out in Avengers Infinity War. But that's the movie for now, and that is it. That didn't take as long as I thought it was going to. So many spinning plates in this. So many. Okay, before we go any further, let's uh, let's talk about the actors who, as usual, make the most immediate impact in any kind of movie. I mean, I, I think this is said a lot, but this is the way Chris Hemsworth is just relishes in his pseudo-Shakespearean bravado as Thor. It's, it's one of the most endearing performances in the Marvel movies, period. He's exceptionally funny and charming and also, like, a talented, dramatic actor. Like, when he has his little, like, meltdown because his dad is dying, like, it's, you feel it, you know? And even even when he's doing those moments with Loki where he's like, oh, you know, maybe we should just go our different ways and whatever. And Loki's like, oh, did you really think so little, little of me? And he pauses and he just says, I thought the world of you. Like, 
That really gets you right in the feels. And he's so good at it. But he's also hilarious and handsome and jacked. It's not fair. It's not as easy to pull off all of those things as possible because, I mean, Jason Momoa is trying to do the same thing whenever he's Aquaman, and it's not nearly as effective. To be fair, because I've seen Jason Momoa in other things, mainly Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, he doesn't have to be anything but just, you know, angry and grunty. But in Aquaman, the writing isn't as good, so he doesn't have as much to work with. I wouldn't put that on Momoa so much as the movie yeah i mean if nothing else the past 15 years of everyone else trying to copy the marvel movies including you know the dc movies which one would think would have a, a good shot of doing it is that while the the films can often get a little homogenous and samey that's sort of like motown type precision in which they're put together it's it's difficult to replicate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i do think that one of the most uh one of the strongest recurring motifs in the marvel movies period is just the the, the sibling relationship between uh thor and loki uh, a lot of that is just the way that hemsworth interacts with tom hiddleston yeah they're my favorite and specifically the second thor movie they remind me a lot of my relationship with our sister cheryl just like whenever we like play video games or or play a board game together or do anything you know that scene where they're like trying to escape and they're pressing all of the buttons on the ship yeah yeah that's that's me and cheryl all the way so in in this one when he's like you know we're gonna do get help it's a great plan let's do it I'm the Loki there. I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. This is a bad idea. Let's not do this. And then he's like, yep, we're going to do it. And then they do it because Loki has no control over the situation. The, the bit that always seems to strike out at you is when Thor is reminiscing about the good old days when, when Loki transformed into a snake because he knows <laughs> that Thor likes snakes so much. And he's just like, aha, it's me. And then he stabbed him. <laughs> And then, and then they cut to Loki just smiling. Yep, because that's just a, that's a knowing smirk. That's a, yeah, that was, that was a good day. What's interesting is that, you know, in the, in the in the early days of the comics, especially in the 60s, Loki is just the god of evil. He's the bad guy. However, like, Hiddleston's performance in this is just so charismatic that they just gradually turned him from chaotic neutral to sort of a protagonist. I mean, it's, it's kind of similar to what it's like in the actual Norse mythology. If you've read any of the Norse myths, Loki isn't evil. He's the god of mischief, and he does kind of stupid shit but it's never malicious really it's just because he wants to it's to get something that he wants like even when he you know accidentally causes the death of balder it's not because he wants balder to die it's just because he thinks it's kind of funny that's something that i was going to bring up if somebody else did and it's just that like half of the surviving norse myths are just loki starting trouble and then weaseling his way out of it which is incrementally what the marvel movies eventually became mm -hmm. and because the marvel movies are what everyone thinks of when they think of these characters the comics have sort of become that as well mm -hmm. like if you look at any any loki appearance in a in a marvel comic after the uh, after the movies took off you know loki's redrawn to look more one direction Directiony, yeah, and, and he's just kind of in there to start trouble, but in a way that helps the heroes sometimes, which I'm mostly down with because yeah, that gets back to the mythological roots. Exactly, and also it made me think, you know, that scene at the beginning when Thor lands on 
on Asgard and he's like, how how has nobody noticed that this is Loki? That tracks with the mythology. Loki does stuff all the time and the other Norse gods just roll with it, even though they should know better because he does this to them all the time. They're just like, well, maybe this time will be different and then it's not different and no one is surprised. Like, or rather, everyone is surprised. It's very, very strange. Yeah, one thing I wanted to get into uh, is just Thor Ragnarok, at least to me, is the first Marvel movie that starts consciously trying to address fan complaints about the previous Marvel movies. And one of those is that a lot of people complain that in the older Marvel movies, the villains aren't very good. They're kind of drab. They're kind of one note. They're just sort of there. And while putting most of the focus on the protagonist makes sense in serialized storytelling, because that's who you're going to see over and over again, because of, you know, Batman and the like, we're accustomed to the villains being a much bigger deal. And I think Thor Ragnarok put more of an emphasis on the bad guys in this one, even though they split it between two of them. First off, Kate Blanchett of Hela. That's kind of a stock role, but she does a lot with it. I mean, she's a great actress to begin with, but she can chew scenery, and that's all Hela does. Every, like, boilerplate line, she just finds a little relish to put on it. Like, when she goes back to Asgard and the armies are massed against her and she just looks at the camera and goes, I thought you'd be happy to see me. You're like... What was interesting is that uh, our our brother Sylvan uh, never understood why people thought Kate Blanchett was, like, uh, this striking beauty until he saw her in this because apparently gothed up cosmic space horror Corolla Deville does it for Sylvan, which is not something that surprises any of us. No, I mean all the spikes and the green and the scraggly hair, you know. No, 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 forget like the gallon of eyeshadow. Yeah, really does it for you. Of course, the other bad guy is Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sylvan asked me if the Grandmaster was in the comics, and if so, if he was anything like how he's depicted in this film. And I was like, yes, he's in the comics, and no, that's Jeff Goldblum, just Jeff Goldblooming it up. The Grandmaster has a similar costume, but all of the various things he does are just Goldblumisms. And, I mean, it, it's astonishing that it took until 2017 for someone to cast Jeff Goldblum to play a supervillain, because you'd think he'd be great at it. What did you think of the Grandmaster, Toby? Yeah, Toby, we haven't heard from you in a minute. I think he was very funny. Uh, which villain did you find more compelling? Was it was it Hela or was it the Grandmaster? The Grandmaster. I am not surprised. Uh, next person we should bring up is probably Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie. Oh man, she does such a good job. I hadn't seen anything that she had been in beforehand. I, I've seen her in a bunch of other things, like Sorry to Bother You. And yeah, she's utterly magnetic in this. I loved her in every scene. I wanted her to show up in like eight more movies as Valkyrie. Uh, yeah, she's just terrific all around. But um, one thing I wanted to bring up really quick related to her character is the notion of queer baiting. Oh boy, yeah. yeah. This has had uh, uglier turns before, but in modern context, queerbaiting is the idea that a major studio will hint that there's going to be a queer character and uh, that they will be bring representation to a marginalized field. And they always cop out. And in this case, Valkyrie is no exception. There were scenes that implied that she was romantically linked with one of her fellow Valkyries who fell off the hand of Hela, but the scene was trimmed out. Now, I do think that Valkyrie still had a decent motivation for becoming just a drunken hot mess afterwards. That was enough. But having uh, an esteemed lover just just die in front of her would have given her more motivation. And there's no clear reason why this was done in, uh, in the editing room. 
room, although most people speculate it was to placate China. It's possible. I mean, if you look at the movie and you have that knowledge beforehand, you can still see it in the flashbacks. Like there is a particular Valkyrie in front of her who takes a hit instead of her and dies. And the look on her face of just utter horror as this other Valkyrie crumbles to the ground. I mean, you could definitely read that in the scene. Um, But you're right, it's not explicitly stated because, I mean, Disney owns Marvel. Disney did it with Frozen 2. Disney does it all the time. To contextualize this, the second biggest marketplace for film is China. Lots of expensive productions, particularly uh, ones like Thor Ragnarok, need a lot of Chinese dollars in order to become profitable. And traditionally, the communist government of China has been incredibly homophobic. And China only allows so many foreign movies to be screened per year in order to help their own uh, domestic film industry. So if there's something in the film that China doesn't like, China will won't screen it, and Marvel needs that money. This is particularly evident in the way that Doctor Strange was edited and put together, and if I ever do a podcast episode about Doctor Strange, we can talk about that one in more detail. I was going to say, that's a whole separate podcast. Yes, it is. I definitely wanted to bring up Carl Urban as uh, Scourge the Executioner. Now, some people have felt that a storyline was tacked on. I I think it was told relatively effectively. I did like some of the points as a comics nerd who's read thousands and thousands of comics, including the uh, Stanley, Jack Kirby, and uh, Walter Simonson run on Thor, that there was an Easter egg in this. During Simonson's run, Scourge sacrifices himself by holding off the uh, forces of Hela by taking two assault rifles and distracting them while everyone else slips away way. I thought that was a nice touch. It was a very nice touch for his character. Now, typically, Scourge in the comics is sort of led around by the Enchantress. He's kind of a Harley Quinn figure who's just so in love with somebody that he doesn't mind that they abuse him. And there's a little bit of that in the film version, but aside from the amorous attachment, Scourge is more interested in proving himself in the digs his own grave in the proceedings, which I think is powerful, at least in these big spectacle popcorn movies. Mm. That kind of way. It was a big moment, I think, with him, with, you know, and Des and Troy, and together they destroy. It is pretty adorable. And I like the way that he, you know, he opened. I found these, uh, you know, one of my favorite places on Earth called Texas. <laughs> okay, and let's get back to Mark Ruffalo. He gets to do a little more as the Hulk. This is the talkiest Hulk yet. And I think tied in quite a bit to the uh, Peter David type of incarnation of the character. Toby, you're, when Thor isn't your favorite Avenger, the Hulk is. Yes. And I think you and I think you got the most excited uh, in this movie while you were watching the, the the Thor Hulk fight. Yes, I was definitely more excited when that was happening. I remember the first time we showed this movie to Toby. It was when we were getting prepared to watch. Toby wanted to come see Endgame with us when it was getting released in theaters, and so we watched all twenty-two movies in like three months, maybe a little under three months. It was it was a very short amount of time to watch 22 movies with an eight-year-old. Because he hadn't seen any of he them. He hadn't seen any of them. And so we got to Thor Ragnarok, and I was so excited because it's one of my favorites. And Toby had no idea that the Hulk was coming. He hadn't paid attention to the loading screen. And so he saw Hulk come out and lost it. He was just so excited and it was almost like a matchup for when Thor starts screaming, Yes! I know him! He's a friend from work. He is definitely a friend from work! Now, Toby, if Thor didn't have that obedient uh, disc in his neck, uh, do you think he could have beaten the Hulk? No. 
No, you, you think the Hulk would beat Thor in a straight-on fight? Yes. I don't think the Marvel movies are ever going to give you a definitive answer. They'll wring more out of you if they never tell you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially now that the Hulk is the... What's what's the official term for that one? Is that the scientist Hulk? Uh, I, I forget what they officially call him. Hopefully he's not the maestro. Mm. <laughs> Then we have Korg, who is director of Watiti in a motion capture suit. He had apparently based Korg's accent on this Polynesian bouncer he was friends with. That's delightful. Anthony Hopkins is Odin. Obviously, Anthony Hopkins was brought in just as a prestigious get for the first two Thor movies. However, I don't think he was given much to do until this one. Oh man, does he do it? The, the beginning, when he is pretending to be Loki, pretending to be Odin, it's it's just, it's delightful. Yeah. Like, he nails Tom Hiddleston's mannerisms, the way he walks around, the way he talks. It's Anthony Hopkins' voice, but it's Tom Hiddleston's dialogue coming out. It's, I mean, even, like, our brother Sylvan said it when we were watching it tonight. I know it's obvious to say that Anthony Hopkins is good, but wow, is he good. Yeah, since the previous two Thor movies didn't really ask much of him, other than to just stand there and be Anthony Hopkins. And, you know, that's enough, but Ragnarok took it a little further. Mm-hmm. One more thing, uh, Surtur, his, uh, he's motion captured by Watiti, but he is voiced by Clancy Brown. And, you know, the second that fire demon opened his mouth and, like, Lex Luthor's voice came out, I was like, oh, this, yeah. this, this movie's gonna have fun with itself. I think another one of my favorite things in that scene was, you know, Thor is talking to the skeleton, and I forget what he says beforehand, but it looks like the skeleton smiles, and then the, the skeleton's jaw falls off, and that, that just made me happy. Right away, uh, Watiti tells you that this is going to be one of the lighter ones in terms of tone. He said himself he wanted the primary uh, emotion that people feel while watching the film to be joy, because, you know, this is going to have Thor in it, it's going to have Hulk in it, Doctor Strange gets a superfluous cameo. This is just going to be big and obnoxious and loud and colorful, and it's going to be reflective of the psychedelic cosmic weirdness of those make-it-up-as-you-go-along Stanley and Jack Kirby comics from the 60s. Even though the movie itself feels like it's more 80s. That's just because of the copious amounts of neon. Uh, that's another thing that people complained about the uh, first few Marvel movies, is that uh, they're kind of drab and there isn't enough color contrast, and oh boy, do they make up for that in this one. <laughs> Like just so much, just arbitrary expressionistic colors and every uh, everywhere. I mean, I luxuriate in that sort of thing, so I, I was down with that. Uh, Toby, how did you feel about the film's visual aesthetic? Did you like the colors? Yes, I did. I think it. I think everybody did a very good job. Right, uh, another thing that uh, people complained about the previous Marvel movies was the music. Just because, I mean, they had typical or orchestral scores, but none of them were especially creative. And even if there were motifs that were effective, more often than not, they drowned them out in like sound effects and in vocal ticks. It just seemed rather striking that Superman has that iconic John Williams theme and Batman has that gorgeous Danny Elfman bit. And then Iron Man is in like six movies and he. He doesn't get like a, a, a little brassy number that you recognize as his whenever he flies on the screen. And I'm not saying that the score is as iconic as like the John Williams Superman or the Danny Elfman Batman, but it was written by uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, who is the lead singer of Devo and composed uh, a lot of television and film music, particularly for Rugrats, which was Rugrats has weird music. You can tell it's the guy from Devo. 
I was just gonna say uh, that tracks. The guy from Devo wrote the music for the movie that I just associate with the 1980s. It's all neon, and the guy from Devo wrote the music. Got it. Yeah, he based it on the music of Jean Michel Jarre, who uh, combines uh, orchestral arrangements with uh, a lot of the uh, 80s bleep bloop. He does have to work in some of the previous Thor themes, and uh, when Doctor Strange has a superfluous cameo, he starts hearing the electric sitter and uh, harpsichord from his score. They do quote the Lonely Man, which is the the Hulk hitchhiking theme from the TV show. Aw, that's cute. It's a little more obvious in in that one uh, Hulk movie where Edward Norton was still playing him, but they used it here. One musical moment that everybody recognizes is the two instances of Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin. Yep. That's another thing that sets the tone is, you know, as soon as you uh, hear those familiar chords rise up as Thor is fighting all the various Surtur demons and, you know, he summons the lightning down and it's so over the top. Watiti had used Immigrant Song for like a sizzle reel of some like practice footage and he just liked how it came off so well that he lobbied Marvel to allow him to put it in the film. Nice. One thing that I should probably get into is how Thor Ragnarok just lifts up and drives away from the previous two Thor movies, both literally and figuratively. Jane Foster is just kind of dismissed in like one throwaway scene where we were like two girls are like, I'm sorry that James dumped you. And then they walk away and he's like, it was a mutual dumping. Very, very sensitive. And that's it. One of the crimes of the preceding two Thor movies is that they went through the trouble to get Natalie Portman as the love interest and then they didn't do anything with her. Yep. She just did typical love interest stuff. And I thought that was kind of a shame that they cast her away in like Thor Ragnarok and, you know, because she wasn't interested in playing that stock role anymore. She was in her 30s and wanted to do other things. It's cool that they're bringing her back as Lady Thor, though. I'm really excited for that. The Warriors 3 get dispatched because nobody cared about them. They've been in two whole movies. And as I said, nobody formed any attachment to them. I had read hundreds of comics featuring those characters and I felt nothing when they died. So I can't imagine anyone who just knows these movies as movies cared about them. Sif is absent completely. Apparently she was on Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, she was. The Warriors 3 are just so disposable that they changed actors a couple of times and nobody noticed. The other human characters, they're not even, like, mentioned the way that Jane is. They're just pushed away. They just decided to focus on Thor as this weird space cosmic deity type thing. And that does seem to be an area where he works best. Like I said, most of the Marvel movies have the the similar tone, uh, a sort of homogeny to them. But throwing Hulk and Thor in outer space and then upping the jokes to even more than than the typical snark in a Marvel movie, which there usually is quite a bit, I I think it does help uh, set it apart a little more. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like it as much as I do. Mm. That allows me to dovetail into some of the themes of the film, which, as I implied earlier in the introduction, despite the high amount of jokiness in this film, there are a lot of heavy things in the subtext. Amongst the foremost would be the anti-colonialist message, uh, which is not subtle. I am not projecting. Hela enters the chamber and looks at Odin literally wallpapering over her accomplishments and says... Odin, proud of what he has, but ashamed of how he got it. (coughs) Great Britain. (coughs) Yeah, well, I mean... Also, United States. The English Empire is hardly the only instance of somebody carving a bloody swath of imperial carnage and then just sort of nicening it up and balderizing it in the history books later on. No, no, not the only one at all. I mean, it was the one that first came to my mind just because, you know imperialism i think of great britain but you also you know then the second thing that usually comes to mind is teddy roosevelt and you know 
big stick. So if you're under the age of 80, you have always lived in a world of nation states. And it just comes as natural to feel that empires are inherently evil. But that's not how it is usually depicted throughout the majority of human history. At any other given time, the uh, empire in Star Wars would be the good guys. But uh, that's not how we see it now. And some of the ways that we cover it up have are a bit awkward, which is, I think, reflective in this film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's another part where Pella points at the throne and goes, where do you think that gold came from? And he was like, yeah, we didn't give the gold back. It's still sitting there in the British Museum. Oh, Black Panther. Just that scene of Black Panther. So satisfying. Thor is not responsible for the atrocities that his father committed, but he still lived a privileged, pleasant life off of the spoils of those conflicts. And it's fair for him to feel conflicted about it. And that is something that he deals with in his emotional arc, just being lied to about his own history and trying to resign himself to that, trying to combine his patriotism and his love for his people with the ugly realities of the roots of his nation. Which, you know, is something that I feel a personal connection with. It's definitely a timely topic. And another thing I wanted to bring up was uh, the notion of a hero's responsibility. As I was getting there before, in the days of classical antiquity, the hero is just the guy who slays the monster, or steals the woman away from Paris and Troy, or goes on the long, arduous quest to bring the sacred scroll back with the assistance of the Monkey King, or something like that. But in the past 100 or 150 years or so, the idea of a hero is more complex than that, or at least there's another facet to it. There's an undercurrent of altruism, which we expect in our hero's journeys these days, which I think brings us to Toby's essay. So Toby had to write a persuasive essay for school where he picked his favorite character of all time, and he decided to choose Thor. So do you want to read your essay, bud? You read it. No, no, no. You read it. Thor is the best character of all time. Thor is the best kind because he is funny, he is strong, and he is kind. Thor is very funny. One example is that he uses very funny words. He speaks very dramatically and uses old-time words. Another example is that he tells funny jokes like, Thou art hungry? Maybe you should taste Thor's lightning. My second reason I like Thor is because he is very strong. One example is that he has a metal hammer named Mjolnir. Mjolnir can shoot lightning and it is very cool. Another example is that he has a metal metal armor that he uses to protect himself during fights. My third and final reason that Thor is very kind, one example is that he and the Avengers save lives all the time and are famous because of it. Another example is that he is nice to his teammates. He helps them out when they faint during battles and is very helpful. And that is the end of my essay. I think that ties into how altruism is a defining aspect of how we uh, interpret modern heroism, which is, you know, evident in superheroes. The patient zero for superheroes is Superman, who is essentially an earthbound god who can bench press a Buick, but usually uses his abilities to help get kittens out of trees. Every superhero to follow Superman has at least a couple of uh, similarities with him. They're either imitating him or trying to run away from him, which is a form of influence in and of itself. And the Thor in the traditional Norse myths is just this angry, often drunk guy who, whenever uh, Loki starts some stuff, threatens to kill him. And then Loki gets scared and decides to weasel his way out of it and save the day. The Marvel Thor more is asked from that character. There's a bit more dimension than that. 
Yeah, the other big difference, I think, between the Marvel Thor and the uh, traditional Norse Thor is that the traditional Norse Thor is kind of stupid. He can be clever in the way that he sort of like tries to trick Loki back. But in general, he's pretty dumb and he's easily tricked by Loki. Thor's a doof in the Marvel movies, but he's a sweet doof and he learns from his mistakes. Right. And it's not that he's it's not that he's a doof in the sense that like he doesn't know what he's doing it's more like he kind of doesn't pay attention to anyone outside of his own personal interest and another thing about thor is that he's scared of his responsibility that's what hinted at in the first two movies and it finally comes to a a dramatic arc in this one is that he finally matures to the point where he is ready to take on the responsibility of asgard's leadership of course in endgame he immediately hands it off to valkyrie but that's another story One other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is the idea of redemption, which is played across at least two characters, one of them being Valkyrie and the other one being Scourge. The idea of people learning from their mistakes and trying to make good on them, even if they've crossed a Rubicon and burned the bridge on the way over and there's no way to, and they try to make something happen of it anyways. And I think there are two different courses of that. Valkyrie, after losing everything she cared about, decided to drown her sorrows uh, with cheap booze on the planet of Sakaar. And it took a lot of prodding to eventually get her back into the swing of things. And I do think that speaks to the character, although I do think it's a little iffy that her alcoholism is just played off as humorous. Yeah, I mean... It works for the most part, Um, you know, the scene where she tells Thor that he has until she finishes the drink to convince her or talk to her, and then she finishes the drink in three seconds. You know, that works, right? I laughed, and then I felt bad afterwards. Yeah, then you're just kind of like, oh, right, she's depressed and drinking herself to death. And even Thor is like, "I I do think that you are going to drink too much and then die. But okay, you can keep drinking if you want to. It goes well with that other scene where, you know, he's talking about how much he admires the Valkyries and how much he wanted to be them. But he he loves women, but in a respectful way. And he's tripping over his own words and gives her an awkward thumbs up. And that's just Thor in a nutshell in these films. Yeah. And not only that, but it's just the way uh, Watiti and the Green Riders just give you information. Because during that whole stumbling monologue, he's explaining to the audience what the Valkyries are. But it's written in a humorous way in order to keep it from being an info dump. And this film has so many spinning plates, it could have easily fallen into like sloppily edited Suicide Squad territory. And it never does, which I think is a compliment to the crew who makes these things. Mm. Okay, and the last bit that I wanted to bring up on the themes is the idea of uh, Asgard being a people and not a place, which is hammered home by a number of the characters, including Andrus Elba, who's for the most part just sleepwalking through this film. I think he's just waiting for his contract to get up. Uh, maybe because he wants to be James Bond, but... He was brought on as a Heimdall-like when he was much less famous than he actually was, and he doesn't need to be in this anymore. He's not quite as bad as Jennifer Lawrence in the X-Men movies. Oh boy, does she not want to be a mystique anymore. <laughs> that is for another podcast also. The idea that a nation is defined not by its borders, but by the community within it is big and broad because this is a big and broad film with lots of massive heavy moments. It's drawn from the traditions of Sophocles and Euripides, who are, you know, despite being academically over-examined for the past hundred or so years, have their roots in crowd-pleasing spectacle. And while it's a big, obvious point, I do think it hits home in the instances that they use it. Yeah, I mean, it's what convinces Thor to find his inner power 
and save his people. Even when Odin is telling him, you know, you're not the god of hammers, which he's not, right? He's the god of thunder. He uses the hammer to direct his power, but he's he's not the god of hammers. He's the god of thunder and the god of lightning. Although I think Thor himself is actually the god of a bunch of other things, too. I can't remember what any of them are, but yeah, there's, one there's... of them might be fertility. I can't remember, but... Um, I think that's usually tear. Is it tear? Uh, if I was forced to guess, I've only read the Eddas a couple of times, and it's yeah. been a while. I uh, I've read Neil Gaiman's Book of Norse Mythology, but I, I can't remember. Yeah, a, a good jumping on point if you want to get into the classical mythology. Well, I don't know if the Norse stuff is considered classical. The word classical is usually applied to Greco-Roman, but close enough. Loki is pretty similar to this, except there's more tug of war involving his testicles. Well, and there's there's a horse. There's two horses. Also, I really liked that they used Fenrir, um, or well, they used Fenris, um, but they don't, you know, explain to you who Fenris is. Um, oh yeah, well, that's just because they're gonna have a scene where a Hulk punches a giant wolf, and that's just cool. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, but they don't want to go into the complicated backstory that that is actually one of Loki's children that he has. It, it, and, and you know that, that that Hela is his daughter and not his sister. Yeah, Loki has a lot of kids. And he mothered them. Yeah. Because he's a shapeshifter. He, yeah, I mean, he... It, like I said, in the Norse mythology, things get weird. But, yeah. At the end, I think if this film is trying to say anything, and all films are trying to say something, even if they're as big and loudly goofy as this one, I think it's trying to make a film that's about community. And the uh, the idea that, you know, your community could be rooted in past atrocities. All nations are built upon the bones of broken nations before them. And not everything is presented to you in a way that is honest. There is a construction and a deconstruction if we're going to get a little bit into French post-war philosophy there. Yeah, at the same time, humans are social animals. We do things in groups. And at the end, that's the way we come together. I'm not sure if that's coming off as a bit of a platitude it probably is because these are big grand audience pleasing spectacles the Cecil B. DeMille's of modern times but I do think that it gives something to think about and things that you can delve into afterwards if you were so inclined or you could just sit back and watch Hulk just ragdoll Thor around in a way like in the previous Avengers film hey you understood that reference isn't that fun so Toby what was your favorite part of the movie my favorite part was probably when Thor and Hulk were fighting the giant wolf and Hela. Okay, why? Because it seemed cool, and I liked how Hulk punched that giant wolf and then fell off the bridge into the water. It looked cool. Him throwing the wolf off the waterfall and then climbing back. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty cool. And, you know, Thor spinning in a circle and shooting lightning as he spins. It's a pretty good jump spin. Yeah, that, that makes me think of Raiden in Mortal Kombat every time I see it. Every time, right? Every time. What was your favorite part? I think my favorite part is either when the when Bruce Banner is trying to find guns on the ship and he hits the button that he thinks looks like a gun and it's just Jeff Goldblum singing a happy birthday song to himself and there are fireworks everywhere. Or when Thor threatens Loki at the beginning of the movie and Loki's finally like, I yield, I yield, because he doesn't want the hammer to hit him in the face. I think my favorite part is the buddy conversation uh, between Thor and Hulk, where, you know, they're, at first they're mad at each other and 
Hulk is like, you have baby arms, you dumb. <laughs> and then they settle down, and Hulk is like, Hulk is like raging fire. You more like smoldering fire. It works. Yeah, I, I, I like the character dynamics in that scene. Uh, that's you know, another thing that I brought up in that Easter Parade episode with Sylvan, is that while the, these are superhero movies and the genre sort of dictates that there has to be punching in it, that is not usually what people's favorite parts are. They they, they, they like the doofy character moments. The, the, the parts that turn into memes are like Thor going, Really, though? Yeah. Is he really? I also really enjoy any of the scenes where Thor and Loki are just acting like brothers. I can feel the recognition just waving off you in undulations. Okay, well, that covers just about everything I wanted to bring up in this episode. Is there anything you guys would like to add? Well, I want to ask, Toby, who's your favorite Marvel character still? Is it is it Thor still, or is it the Hulk? That's really tough. Um, I'm just gonna have to call it a tie. He does waver. It does every time it changes. Okay, well, uh, that's it. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. See you next time. Postscript. The Norse deity of fertility is Frey, occasionally depicted with a gigantic phallus. I have added this to keep pedants from pointing this out in the comments. Good night.